Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. For many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year And without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the review planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The review planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. To learn more about the Review Planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com and pre-order yours today. In this episode, you meet Amy S. Hilliard. Amy is an award-winning serial entrepreneur and a former senior corporate executive. A native of Detroit, she is an honors graduate of both Howard University and the Harvard Business School and is also certified in digital social marketing by Columbia University. The Hilliard Group, her strategic marketing consulting firm for over 20 years, has worked with clients including Nielsen, IBM, Pandora Jewelry, BET Networks, American Express, HBO, The Gap, The Limited, PepsiCo, and others. In 2001, she founded the Comfort Cake Company, makers of pound cake so good it feels like a hug, which gained distribution with United Airlines, Walmart, a McDonald's test market, and home shopping network, among others, using Amy's own pound cake recipes. Amy now licenses Comfort Cake's intellectual property in sugarless sweetness, a patent-pending sugar substitute. Recently president of Fashion Fair Cosmetics, the global legacy cosmetics company focused on women of color, Amy is a former retailing, senior marketing, and advertising executive with Bloomingdale's Gillette, Pillsbury, Burrell Communications, and L'Oreal. Her marketing innovations to build Gillette's white rain brand into a $100 million business were documented in a case study for the University of Virginia's Darden Business School. Amy also has been an executive lecturer at Loyola University's Quinlan School of Business. A proven thought leader on entrepreneurship, empowerment, and marketing, Amy has been profiled in Fortune, Success, Entrepreneur, CNN, Black Enterprise, Essence, Ebony, and NPR. An international speaker, she is also the author of Tap Into Your Juice, Find Your Gifts, Lose Your Fears, and Build Your Dreams, endorsed by First Lady Michelle Obama. Her blog, Sizzling After 60, Thriving at Every Stage of Your Life, is popular among all ages. Based in Chicago and passionate about her community and health and wellness, Amy is a proud mother of two young professionals, Amy also served two terms as a trustee of Howard University, 13 years on PepsiCo's Multicultural Advisory Board, 
and was the first African-American elected to the board of the National Association of the Specialty Food Trade. Amy currently sits on the leanin.org advisory board with Cheryl Sandberg. Her website is www.amyshilliard.com. Now, Amy, if you know her, has probably one of the widest ranging personal board of directors. She has had tons of corporate experience, also has made the crossover from entrepreneurial and back to corporate and back for well over two decades. And so I was really excited to have her on to the podcast. We talked about everything from, you know, rebuilding after tragic loss. We've talked about being the only one in the room um, and also what the value going to an HBCU provided for her foundation that allowed her to be as successful as she has been in her corporate career. So as always, grab your I Choose the Ladder notebook, your favorite beverage of choice, and get ready to get to work. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for saying yes. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be with you. Um, And I know we have a lot to talk about. You have a book that's going to be coming out. You and your sister made history like a long time ago. You have been at the forefront of Black entrepreneurship, your own entrepreneurship, corporate. Like, I can't wait. I have so many notes. And so I hope you will let me fangirl for a little bit as we go through this conversation. Of course, of course, I'm a fangirl, you back. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, so first, you have, so you were, for those who don't know, Amy was the former president, right, of Fashion Fair Cosmetics? That's right. And you've also successfully run your own business in tandem with that for well over a decade, right? And so right. growing up, what did you think you were going to be doing with your life when you became an adult? Well, you know, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur growing okay. up. Um, I, my mother used to get mad at me because she had a beautiful, um, row of rose bushes and I used to pick the rose bushes. I told her I picked them off the ground, but I actually would pick them off the rose bushes and soak them in water, make them into little, you know, vials of perfume that I would buy little bottles at Woolworths from my babysitting money. And I'd sell them to her friends. It was Amy's perfume, right? So. Yes. I mean, I started that way, way back. And then I had my babysitting business as well, that mm-hmm. I would make my own little three by five cards. Um, I cut the index cards up and make my own business cards because I had a lock on the babysitting in the weekends. I was one of those people that if you need a babysitter, I'm your go getter. <laughs> and I used to just have babysitting jobs all weekend. So I always liked the entrepreneurial world. Mm-hmm. But um, I so I knew at some point I wanted to have my own business because I, I grew up in Detroit. Detroit. And in Detroit, you know, people used to say, you know, when I told them I grew up in Detroit, they would say, oh, you poor thing. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, when I grew up in Detroit, the auto plants were humming. I grew up in a mixed neighborhood of mixed use neighborhood. It was all black, but I grew up with doctors, lawyers, and numbers runners all on my same block. (laughs) Everybody kept their houses great. And I grew up with entrepreneurs, people who had their own drug stores, people who had their own beauty supply stores. Um, I saw black entrepreneurship all growing up so that I knew that I I could do that. Mm -hmm. But when I um, started growing up and saying, okay, what did I want to do? Um, My parents were, you know, they were okay with having entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship as a side hustle. Mm -hmm. But growing up with one of four daughters, it was go to school, go to college and get a job. Mm -hmm. A-O-B, get the security. Mm -hmm. So that that, that 401k, the health insurance, the stability, all of that. 
all of that, all of that. And education was huge in my household because my mother was a teacher. My father was uh, had a, done teaching in his career as well. So education was really important. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I grew up and I went to um, Howard University, um, which was my dream school, but I had to work to get there. But once I got there, it was one of those things that, okay, I want to go to uh, fashion. I loved fashion. I was on a teen fashion board in Detroit at JL Hudson's. And then I started working in um, retail and corporate at Bloomingdale's. And then I went to grad school. So, you know, I had corporate jobs. And so I b- didn't envision myself having those corporate jobs, but that was the path to get the JOB. Hmm. So thinking back to your time at Howard, what do you think going to a historically black college for undergrad instilled in you that you have been able to use um, for all these years later? Confidence with a capital C. Mm, How so? Because when you are able to be in an environment where the cloak of discrimination is not on your shoulders at all. Mm. And for four years, all I saw were people who looked like me, who were striving for excellence. It was amazing. And I just saw that all around me. I saw professors who looked like me. I saw people from all over the world who were just trying to be the best that they could be. There was such heritage that you could see, you know, from the Thurgood Marshall, from the Charles Drew, from the, um, um, you know, the the other wonderful women who had gone through the school as well. It was just the amazing confidence that said, you can be whoever you want to be. And that has carried through my entire life. And then I guess the the flip side of that. So we know that corporate is not that, right? Like you're not going to be around just people who look like you. You're probably going to be one of, or one of a few, right. if not only. And then you also went to grad school at an institution that is known for being very privileged and very white. And right. so how did you decide one for where you would go to grad school? And mm-hmm. two, how have you been able to, how were you able to navigate the transition from going to a very black growing up world, undergrad, very black to then not very, very black at all. Well, it's interesting uh, watching because I went, grew up in a black city in an all black environment, but my junior high school, I integrated. Mm -hmm. So I had the opportunity to experience what it was like being the only black in an all white environment in junior high school. Wait, so you literally integrated the school? Literally, because Um, the 67 riots in Detroit were just right down the street from where we lived. Mm -hmm. And so my parents were like, okay, we're going to make sure that you get a good education. And I, I was part of the, um, group of kids who integrated Metatol junior high school, which was in a Northwest side of Detroit, all Jewish neighborhood. And we literally were bused to that school. And we were, and whenever they have a meeting that they had to talk to the black kids, they code used all the kids who rode the bus, we need a meeting. That meant all the black kids. And I was one of two um, kids in my junior high school in my homeroom. So I had that experience. Hmm. And um, it was an incredible experience because we integrated the school. I had a lot of issues with teachers who wouldn't call on me. You know, I'd raise my hand, they would just call on everybody all around me. I had to, you know, check that behavior with one of my teachers got called into the counselor's office about it because you know she wouldn't call on me and I I called her on it and because my mother told me to stand up for you know my value and at the end of my junior high school time I was voted the senior class vice president 
didn't know that's right, Amy. I, that's amazing. And yeah. I think it just speaks to like the resilient spirit of Black people, right? Like there are so many things that could potentially hold us back, but somehow, some way, like we find a way to not allow it to, which is, and to be able to do that in junior high, like 12, 13 years old, that's phenomenal. It taught me a lot of lessons. So it, it, you know, my parents in Detroit, you know, helped to, you know, make sure I knew who I was, but then Howard really solidified that. And not only the confidence, but to know your value. And then when I went to Howard, a lot of my buddies, because I was in student government, um, they were all going to law school. But one of my friends, we were all talking about, well, where are we going to go to grad school, law school? They were going to law school or med school. And I knew I wanted to go to business school. But one of my friends gave me some great advice. He said, where are you applying? I said, well, I, you know, I'm looking at grad schools. He goes, let me tell you what you should do. Start at the top. Mm. Go apply to the top 10 schools. If they don't get you, if you don't get in there, then go to the next 10. But always start at the top. And I've never forgotten that. So I applied to the top 10 business schools at the time, Harvard, Columbia, Wharton, Stanford, all of the top 10 schools. Hmm. And Harvard accepted me. Hmm. And they accepted me, though, on what was called a deferred admit, which was we want you to work for two years and then come. Oh, and see, I didn't. Were you right out of undergrad when you applied? I was applying thinking I was going to go right into grad school. I remember reading that letter to my parents. I got the letter and I opened it and I was reading it to my parents the first time reading it to them. And this was, I was uh, graduating in 1974, hoping to go into the class of 1976. So I'm like, you have been accepted to the class of 19, the graduating class of 1978. I'm like, what, what, what? <laughs> and I was crying to my parents. I'm like, what are they talking about? And then I read the whole thing. We want you to work and get some working experience. And my parents said, calm down. You've still been accepted to Harvard Business School. And it was a, it was a turning point for me. And I think that's a life lesson there, right? Like delay does not mean denial, right? You Absolutely. didn't get it right when you wanted it, but you were able to get some life experience that then hopefully made your, your B-School experience a little bit different than what it would have been had you gone straight out of undergrad. Oh, totally, totally. So what did you do to fill those two years? Well, that was a major pivot point for me because I really wanted to become a fashion buyer. That's what I studied to do when I was at Howard. And so, but that strategy of always going for the top was something that I used when I started to look for a job because I hadn't really started to look for a job because I was going to grad school right after school. I was like, hey, I'm going to school. But then when I had to look for a job, I said, okay, you want to go into retail, you want to go to fashion. What are the top department stores in the country? Bloomingdale's was number one. The Queen of England had just gone there to visit. I'm like, well, I'm going to apply there. Luckily, they had come to, to uh, Howard's campus to recruit. And so I was able to get um, uh, um, to Bloomingdale's. And I looked at the Hudson's in Detroit and other school, uh, department stores as well as backup. But Bloomingdale said, OK, yes, we can bring you to New York for New York interviews. Oh, so, that's oh. a huge deal. It was huge. So I was very happy. And they said, we like you and we would like you to, uh, I got to the HR department and they said, well, we're very happy and we want you to come to Bloomingdale's and we want you to start in the men's sock department. I was like, the men's yes, sock department. That's a whole department? Yeah, socks and ties and, you know, the men's department. And I was like, do I look like the sock girl, the men's sock department girl to myself, right? 
because I was in the fashion. I had worked in Georgetown and the boutiques and everything. I was a fashionista, right? And so I said to the recruiter who was a black guy, I said, you know, can I just, you know, talk to somebody in the designer dress area or something? He's like, oh no, you better take what they are giving you. You know, this is Bloomingdale's and you're black and you know, you should take what they're giving you. And I started to employ something that I've used the rest of my life, which was, and I didn't know what it was called, but I just asked the HR person. I told the recruiter, I just agreed with him. But when he walked out of the room, I asked the um, HR woman, I said, you know, since I'm in New York, would it be possible to have an exploratory conversation with the buyer of the designer dress area since I'm here, mm-hmm. you know? And apparently she knew the buyer and she looked at me and she said, well, let me just call her and see if she's in. Because mm. I didn't say, I didn't get all puffy or anything. I just let me just explore talking to her. She called and sent me upstairs to talk to Miss Elaine Monroe. And this was the designer dress area, top of the top. I'm talking Bill Blass, Oscar de la Renta, Valentino, the top. And we got along like gangbusters. And Elaine Monroe called back down to HR. She said, listen, I don't care what the policy says or where assistants are supposed to start, but I like Amy and I want her to work for me. Make it happen. Ooh. Well, so another life lesson, right? Like don't accept a no from somebody who's not the ultimate yes, right? That recruiter is not the final say. So his no, right? Like you find ways to work. Come on, Amy. You weren't afraid though? Because I think a lot of times when we're talking about Black women speaking up, asking for what they want, knowing what they deserve, a lot of times there's like fear associated with like standing your ground or or going for what you want. So how did you not let fear hold you back in that moment? It was more, it wasn't fear. It was like, this is your, this is your shot. Mm. You're sitting in Bloomingdale's top of the top. You love designer fashion. Why not ask the question? What's the worst that could happen? That's the thing that you go through your mind and saying, all they can say is no. Mm-hmm. And so you're sitting there with your shot, take it. And this is something that I think Black women need to, you know, it comes up to some of the questions that you'd ask. We have a fear of going forward and saying sorry later. Mm. You know, we need to just do it and then apologize later instead of trying to be perfect and doing everything right. Some, this is what other people do. They just like, they go for it. And if they get in trouble, they say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. But nine times out of 10, you don't have to apologize because you've got the smarts, you've got the skills, you've got the education. And people were like, okay, give it, let's give her a shot. She had enough nerve to ask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Might as well. So I'm, I'm going to assume, granted, I wasn't there, that once you're at Bloomingdale's, it's not a Howard environment, right? It's not a, it's an environment where you're probably one of the only, probably the only black person in the design address department. So how did you, um, how did you find people to help you get through that time, right? Whether it's like mentors or sponsorship, we talk about this a ton. How did you find ways to, to navigate that space? Well, this is where, like we talked about, your personal board of directors is important. There was a, um, a group of black people in retailing called the Black Retail Action Group. 
because there were black people in retailing and I sought them out. I was very active in that group because there were um, blacks who had risen through the retail ladder and I really talked to them. There were some wonderful people there who had you know, been able to climb that ladder and I relied on them for support and for advice. And I you know, talked to them and they gave me a lot of tips on how to do it. There were some other blacks who had been in different um, stores who had like Saks Fifth Avenue, other stores, and I would see them and talk with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I used them. And then there were people within Bloomingdale's who were not black, who I got along with mm-hmm. and who were support to me. And I talked um, at the summit about how it's important to find people in other functions who can show you the ropes. Mm-hmm. You know, you've had a, for example, at Bloomingdale's at the time, one of my responsibilities was getting the clothes out of the inventory storerooms onto the floor, mm-hmm. the shipping rooms. And that was a big, huge area. I mean, you just think about how big the store is and those clothes and shipping, the racks of clothes, you had to schlep clothes in and out very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to know the shipping manager, you know, so he and I got to be friends because, I had to make sure my stuff was coming off those lines quickly. And so he would always kind of work with me because I would speak to him. I knew him by his first name. I didn't look down on him. He became my personal board of directors in the store. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was important. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the personal board of directors. And for you, right, one, I think one of the challenges that we find is people who are early or mid-career don't necessarily understand how they can also provide value to their personal board of directors. So first, how do you think about that, right? You're pretty senior now. I'm pretty sure a lot of people want you on their board of directors. How do you think about, you know, what the reciprocal relationship should look like? And then the second part of that, as you become more senior in your career, how has your personal board of directors changed? Well, let's talk about the reciprocal part first, because I think there is a reciprocity involved. Um, particularly as, you know, I become more senior and I evolved into different stages of my career. I enjoy talking with younger women Mm. because the things of technology and things are evolving so fast. You guys know that stuff, you know? And so I learned from the younger women about that piece as I can exchange what I've learned over the course of my career. Mm -hmm. And so I enjoy helping uh, younger women who are serious about what they wanna do. Mm -hmm. And they're not coming to me with, I have no idea what to do. You know, they're not coming to me with, I'm just out here trying to think of what to do. I, I, I want people who are coming with some bullet points, when people come to me and ask for my help, I say, send me some bullet points about what it is you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Because I can't really help people who come to me with a blank slate. Mm -hmm. I don't have the time and they should have more than a blank slate at this point in their career. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, if they do that, I push back and I challenge them. I say, you need to come with me with some objectives of what it is you're looking for and seeking so I can better help you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I really, for people who either come to me for um, career advice in corporate, or they have an idea, an entrepreneurial idea, and they haven't even looked at doing um, any sort of business plan, you know, or even just a framework of a business plan, I push back and I say, until you can come to me with some sort of framework of a business plan of what you want to do, it wouldn't be worth either of our times to Mm -hmm. talk. And that's what I tell people. So I think that's what we said. I said yesterday, like before you expect people to invest their time into you, you have to first demonstrate that you're willing to invest your time into yourself. 
Like Absolutely. you cannot ask for, you cannot ask from somebody what you are not first willing to give to yourself. Like to me, that's unreasonable. That's and I, unreasonable. Like you're so harsh. I'm like, it's not harsh. Like you have to take the time. You have to have skin in the game before you expect somebody else to carve out time in their lives and their schedule to invest in you. That's right. That's right. It's And it's, it's really quite commonsensical to me. You know, it really is because it is not easy out here and nobody is just going to hand you anything because that's not the way it works. And so if you think that you want to rise up in corporate America, they don't call it work for nothing. You know, success follows the, you know, work is what you have to get to and you've got to get to work before you can be successful in any endeavor. And you've got to be, you know, I tell people all the time, one of the things that, that I love is the name DreamWorks. you got to work in order to find your dream, period, end of story. And, and I think that- for our generation, we underestimate how long you have to work. I think there's an instant gratification thing that we've been like fed with the, the tech boom and like all these things. And so everybody assumes that you're going to be CEO of a like of a company or like the head of a company or senior leadership in three years. And mm-hmm. that's not, especially if you're a black woman, for most of us, that's not real life. No, for black women or for anybody at all, it's not real life. Mm-hmm. And so people need to understand that. And to your second part of the question, as I've evolved in terms of, as I've become more senior and I've had, you know, my, I've, you know, spent 30 years in corporate America and different um, corporations, fortune 500 corporations. I'm one of those people who's segued both in between, you know, senior corporate, senior and a serial entrepreneur going back to corporate Gillette, L'Oreal, Pillsbury, you know, uh, and then my own companies. You, you evolve what you need from your personal board of directors. What I had as personal board of directors going through corporate was very different from the personal board of directors that I, and advisors that I had for Comfort Cake. Mm. Totally different because when I went to found Comfort Cake, I needed people who had been in the food industry mm. because even though I spent time at Pillsbury, I needed people who had really been out there as entrepreneurs in the food industry. So that was a totally different thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally different thing. And so, you know, I needed people who had, you know, had business with food service, who had, you know, been in food plants, who had, you know, sold different things across the board, you know, to big, big companies. Um, and so it was a different type of thing and um, had raised investor money, for example. Mm-hmm. So those were different types of skill sets that I needed to help me. Um, and as you know, you talked about a lot of the companies that you've worked for over the course of a 30 year career. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking back to um, the times where you've managed people from different backgrounds, are there mis- maybe not mistakes, but like maybe unconscious choices that you're seeing black women making in the corporate space that their counterparts may not be that could potentially be holding back their progression or the rate at which they progress? Well, I think we touched on it earlier. And that again is where we think we have to be perfect. Um, And one of the things I often see is when there are jobs that are available or jobs get posted, there may be eight bullet points of criteria for the new job. Mm -hmm. We may see that we have five of those and we say, well, I can't go for that job because I've only got five of the eight. Mm -hmm. Our other counterparts say, I've got four of the eight. I'm going for the job because I can learn the other four. Mm-hmm. They say that I can learn the other four because I have skill sets that have proven that I can learn on the job. We say we don't have the other four or the other three, so I can't go for the new job until I have all eight. And that is where that is that holds us back 
incredibly because we do not give ourselves enough credit for the fact that we can learn whatever it is we need to learn. And you have to look back on what you've done before and almost in any position you've had, you've had to learn something on that position that you didn't know before. Mm -hmm. You've had to go to people who have the skills or the expertise and they've taught you things. So if they taught you then, they can teach you on your next step up. So I think when we've had, not me and you, but like in the I Choose the Ladder community, when we've had conversations about mm -hmm. that, like not going like for the roles, the feedback that we've gotten is that it seems that other people, not necessarily Black people, are given the grace and the opportunity to learn, whereas Black people are always getting tested along the way. So they don't feel like they have the luxury of applying for something to say, like, I can learn it. Because for us, it's like, it's a different standard of mm -hmm. like, you have to show and prove all the time. Do you think that there's any like validity to that? Oh, there is, because I, I experienced it. I experienced it when I was um, at Gillette. When I was at Gillette, I was like, okay, what is it gonna take to get me promoted to from you know senior brand manager to director? And I, they were like, well, you're not seasoned enough. I said, I'm not cooking a recipe here. What, what are you talking about? I'm not seasoned enough. I have done new products that have done well. I have, pre, you know, I've managed brands that have done well. You know, I had created, created, you know, I've taken some of the oldest brands that they had had and I've turned those around. What are you talking about seasoned? And they kept telling me seasoned. And that's when I started looking at entrepreneurial opportunities. Those are the kind that were entrepreneurial in, in scope, but they were within the structure of the organization, looking for projects that nobody wanted to do, looking for um, ideas that were outside of the box that could really elevate my position and visibility within the organization. So they couldn't tell me I wasn't ready. And that's when I looked at the, um, I took the chance of the multicultural marketing opportunity because I had been waving that flag since I got to Gillette as to why aren't you advertising in Ebony Jet, Black Enterprise, Essence. We use deodorant, we use shampoo, and you're not advertising in our books. And I kept waving that flag. Well, the opportunity came up when they saw how much money was being made from Johnson Products who had Afrosheen when they went public. And all of a sudden, Gillette was saying, you know, they're making a lot of money over there with this Black hair care thing. Mm -hmm. And Amy, you've been talking about this for a long time. Why don't you come and lead this charge for us to get into the Black hair care business through acquisitions? Did that, did that come with a new title? Not yet, but I took that project to heart. And I said, oh, you wanna get into acquisitions and you wanna acquire a black hair care company? Now this is after I had been at Harvard Business School, so I had finance and whatnot, but I had never done acquisitions. I majored in marketing. Next thing I know, I'm traveling the country asking every black hair care manufacturer, do you wanna sell your company to Gillette over lunch to the heads of these companies? So I met the CEOs of Soft Sheen, of Eminem Products, of Carefree, of um, Proline, asking them these questions. By the time we acquired, we were the first, Gillette was the first company to acquire a black hair care company. They weren't actually black, but they made products. Lustra mm -hmm. Silk was the company mm -hmm. out of Minnesota. And they said, okay, we made this acquisition happen and we want you to go out and run the marketing. I said, I'm not going unless I'm, an, I'm a director. Mm. And that's how I got that position, that promotion. So how did you stop yourself from becoming resentful, right? Because in that situation, you were already doing the work. And I'm pretty sure that there were people who didn't look like you, who weren't contributing as much, whose promotion track was very different than yours. So in those situations, how do you not allow yourself to like 
to become resentful to the people who are really not holding up their end of the agreement. You know, it's a situation where you can make the decision and it's a mindset decision. You can still, you can sit there and be resentful or you can sit there and say, I'm gonna make something happen differently. It's that pivot. You know, my book is about pivot points and knowing when to make the turn. And the 10 pivot points that I talk about all the time are believing in possibilities. So you can sit there and be resentful or you can say, what are the possibilities now, six months from now, a year from now to change things around? Mm. And so you can use, you got 24 hours in a day and the energy that you can put, you can put the energy to being resentful or you can put the energy into making change. And I chose to put the energy to making change and looking at my possibilities. How do you know, so we were talking about the book and pivot points, right? How do you know when it's time to pivot internally versus when it's time to actually make a change and leave? Like in your career, as you look back, how have you decided, like, so for Gillette, you decided to pivot internally, but there, have been, there was obviously a time where you decided that it was time to leave Gillette. So how do you differentiate between when it's time for you to make an internal pivot versus like, all right, I've done all that I can do here. It's time to move on. Well, you have to really look at, okay, what is it that you, uh, like you said earlier, you have to know yourself. And it's very important to first know yourself. Mm -hmm. I tell people all the time to make sure that you are clear about what your strengths and weaknesses are and your, what your objectives are. There's something called strength finders, which you can go online and take that test. I took it years ago and take it over time. Don't just take it once and believe that it, what it is. I knew what my strengths were. I knew what I liked to do, what I didn't like to do. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not getting the opportunities to really elevate your strengths and soar with your strengths, in a situation and you have made all of the efforts to do so and you've got good reviews and whatnot, then you have, to, you have to ask yourself, is this the company that's going to give me that opportunity? And you've tried everything that you needed to try. Then you, number one, always keep your paper current. Always keep your paper current. And then always keep your skill sets current. You know, so for example, at this stage of my uh, career, I went back to make sure I had a, a certificate in digital and social media. This was, you know, very fairly recent because I knew as a marketer, I had to have that skill set, you know, and I graduated from school a long time ago, but I said, if I'm going to be a marketer, I have to have that on my paper. And so you got to keep your skills um, current and your paper current so that when you're ready to think about moving and an opportunity may come up, you can take advantage of it. Yeah. That is uh, something that you need to do if you're sitting in a corporation, but if you know yourself and you're feeling that this isn't using all of my God-given gifts, then you better be ready to start making a move. Mm. And then you start looking at what kind of place would I like to go to next mm -hmm. and do your research. Because mm. you know a, a corporation has a purpose-driven, and everybody's talking about purpose-driven organizations these days. Research and make sure that there's a fit between that purpose-driven organization and your own personal purpose. Hmm. because that fit's got to be there mm -hmm. and then, about entrepreneurship you were talking about you know how after you had done the first acquisition you said i'm not going to move further unless i'm a director right mm -hmm. a lot of the time especially for black women we are trying to avoid being stereotyped as the angry black woman like that's everything that people were talking about after the vice presidential debates right how kamala uh, senator harris literally you could see her Tamp like tampering down to make sure that she didn't send off like the the wrong impression or come across as unlikable even though like 
she was probably warranted. And mm -hmm. so if you thought about boundaries that you set within your careers and like understanding what the value that you bring and holding people accountable for compensating or whatever um, accordingly, how have you thought about the stereotypes that are associated with Black women um, as it pertains to like a corporate environment? Well, it it's, you know, I often talk to people about, don't get mad about the reality. Manage the perceptions because you can't change the reality of how people are going to sometimes view black women who are assertive. They're gonna call you what they're gonna call you. I mean, we can spend, this is how I, I, I look at it watching. You know, people get so wound up about what's fair, this isn't fair. They're calling me an angry black woman. There's racism, this isn't fair. And you get wound up about that. Again, that's using your energy over and here, you know? Use your energy in terms of managing the perception to your advantage. So if they, if you know that their perception is they're going to call you an angry black woman, if you, if you ratchet up your voice too high, learn how to do it differently. I studied black women who have what is called the iron fist in a soft glove. Iron fist in a soft glove. That's say right. More, Amy, say more. Okay. There are women, and they don't have to be in corporate America. There are women, you can see them in your church. You can see them in clubs. You can see them how they manage their husbands, who they can get what they want quite effectively without raising their voice. But I started studying them. Mm. Because, uh -huh, because you don't always have to come across as angry. And you can study Kamala and how she did it. She, yes, she had to tamp it down. And you all, we all knew how oh. angry she was. She was angry. Because he was, was lying. Because he, he was, was lying. He was lying. And we all knew that look, that look that, that Felicia Rashad gave on the Cosby show when she was talking to people. We all knew the mama look. But we, the other people that she had to convince didn't know that look. We knew it. Mm -hmm. They saw a woman who was under control and looked presidential. She was iron fist in a soft glove all day long in that debate. Hmm. And it's true, I think long. we know the look because there are so many, like I said, watching the debate was very triggering for me because in the workplace, we all know people like him. Right. We all have experienced right. conversations in the same exact way um, right. and not feeling like the person who was the moderator was stepping in enough to like cover Kamala, like Senator oh. Harris, right? Oh. And so I think for a lot of Black women watching the vice presidential debate, it was like, oh, here's my life. Here is my corporate life on full display. That's and right. It, and it was great, I think, to see someone handle that situation with such grace, but she wasn't a pushover, which I, I thought was amazing. I told, I, I posted on Instagram, I said, every woman and girl in America need to be taking notes because when you get into that situation and we've all been there, it's like, what do you do when a man of power starts talking over you? How do you address that situation? You can be an angry black woman, or you can just say, you can choose to say, I'm still speaking and use your killer smile or not. Mm. Because sometimes a smile can be used effectively and not smiling can be used effectively too. Mm -hmm. And so what I have done is using that approach over time is like, um, I tend to be, 
I was never accused of being an angry black woman, but I've been accused of being quite direct. So I've used my smile more, you know, and I've been very gregarious, you know, and, and friendly outside of meetings, but I am from Detroit mm. and I have been known to take people there if I have to. Uh, so before we get to the book, let's talk very briefly about your time as, you know, as president of Fashion Fair Cosmetics, right? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, you had been in the beauty industry, you love that stuff. Um, did you ever deal with imposter syndrome, right? Even though you had accomplished so much, even though you had done a lot, Fashion Fair was a historic brand, like people knew it, but mm -hmm. part of your job, right, was to interface with people who may not understand the uh, well at the time the appeal of black cosmetics in, in that kind of a world so mm -hmm. have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome and how have you if you have gotten it under control what are some techniques that you use to like remind yourself of who exactly you are well you know when i looked at that um as a as a thought question i have um always used my faith mm -hmm. as the foundation for everything I do. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I rely on is that if God put me there, I'm supposed to be there. Yeah. And so, yes, you know, you're, there are times when I get nervous, but there are also times when, and I study successful people, and I know that there are times when they get nervous too. Barbara Streisand still gets nervous when she performs mm -hmm. right before she goes on stage. She gets nervous. I'm like, if Barbara Streisand gets nervous, okay, I can get, my nervousness is not, you know, something to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And so I let it pass. But if I'm there, if I am in the room, I'm supposed to be in the room. And so I keep that in mind. And then if, so I don't let imposter syndrome seep deeply into me because I'm not, a, I'm a child of God and I'm supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I wouldn't be there. And anytime God makes you, he gives you um, a purpose, he will provide the provision for you to move through. And, and so that's what helps me a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had to use it, you know, a lot, not only in corporate America, but, you know, when, when I was at Harvard business school, you know, and, and, Sometimes you have to put yourself in situations that will allow you to tamper down on that imposter syndrome. For example, um, there were only 31 blacks in a class of 800 when I got to Harvard Business School. And each section had 80 people in it. So we were divided into sections. There were three blacks in my section. And it was sit, the, the, the scenario was you were sitting in arena-like uh, arena -like seating. So the professor was down front and everybody was sitting. You could sit in the very back row mm -hmm. and kind of disappear. I sat in the front row. Mm -hmm. I sat in the middle of the front row. He was not, the teachers were not going to not see me. Mm -hmm. So if I had imposter syndrome, I couldn't have it but so much. Mm -hmm. So I forced myself to be in the room. Mm -hmm. So you can do things to force yourself to be in the room, even if you feel like you shouldn't be. So as someone who was the black head of a company, are there things outside that you know that you had to deal with that maybe your non-black counterparts did not have to at other companies? Um, because I think a lot of us, like we look at getting to the higher, the highest parts of corporate or whatever, but mm -hmm. we don't necessarily know like 
what we're signing up for, right? Like what we're up against when we sit in those seats. So mm-hmm. looking back on that time, and we'll talk about this also as it pertains to you being a Black entrepreneur, but are there things that in the higher, the heights of being a Black female corporate executive that you know that you dealt with that your counterparts or peers that you know of did not necessarily have to deal with? And how would we prepare for that? Well, sure. I mean, as a president of a Black company for Black women, you know, you're dealing with the big companies, I mean, we had all of our distribution were in the major department stores across the country. So here I am walking in as a president of a black company for black women. And they're used to dealing with the Estee Lauders and the, you know, the Mac and Macs of the world. And I walk in there, but the thing that you had to, that I made sure that we did was that we presented our stuff in exactly the same professionalism that was given to them by the other corporate com- companies. You can't walk in there with your stuff not tight. Mm-hmm. And I was insistent upon it. Mm-hmm. And so we over- I overhauled our sales force. I overhauled our marketing presentations. I overhauled everything because mm-hmm. I said, we are not walking in there like they don't expect us to be top notch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was just a matter of using the right PowerPoint presentations, using the right delivery systems when we would present you just walk in there like you know that our stuff was tight and it was mm-hmm. and that you knew their business better than they did mm-hmm. so they you knew that we were bringing people into their stores that were buying not only their cosmetics but their accessories their shoes mm-hmm. you know you over indexed black women over indexed in certain categories that those department stores needed and so we would talk that stuff so you had to be super prepared mm-hmm. and that's something that i talk about in cuz in the beginning, when I started, entre- uh, I choose the latter, the conversation was around like, oh, she's trying to tell Black women that they should stay in corporate. And that's never been my objective. It's never going to be my objective. But like what you just said, I think illustrates um, my point in that because you had experience doing that at a high level in corporate, when you become an entrepreneur, you know how to translate that. You know that if you're going to pitch to put comfort cakes into a certain place, you know what they're expecting the level that you're hoping to come in at, right? And I think if you don't get some of those experiences on someone else's diamond corporate, the learning curve becomes very steep when you go out on your own because you don't know what's supposed to go in a presentation deck. You don't know what your competitors are doing because you just have not had the experience. That is a very important point because I used a blue ribbon strategy for my resume building, knowing that I wanted to become an entrepreneur down the road. Mm. I worked for blue ribbon companies, blue chip companies Mm. all through my corporate career because I knew at some point I wanted to totally step away from corporate Mm. and that I needed to learn from the best of the best. That top to the top strategy was strategic. It was deliberate so that I knew when I stepped out, I knew what they were expecting. Mm -hmm. And you have the relationships that those names bring, right? Like as you're working for certain corporations, the caliber of people that you're dealing with day to day, right? Those are people who become part of your network so that when you go out on your own, you're not starting over from scratch to try to figure out like, who do I talk to if I need sponsorship? Who do I talk to who can write checks? You have to be strategic about it. So it's like, don't, I'm not saying stay in corporate. I'm saying that make sure that you are getting as much as you're giving from corporate so that if you decide to leave, you have more than just the title and the money that you make. You have that's right. skills that can't right. be taken for you. That's right. Titles are what you rent. Character is what you build on. Mm-hmm. So you know? for you, you've done both, right? You've done, you've gone corporate um, entrepreneurial, corporate entrepreneurial, 
corporate mm-hmm. advisory, right? Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurial. So what do you think if someone's thinking about doing that? Having some feedback here. Do you hear it? You hear oh. feedback from me? I'm just hearing feedback, yeah, on the on the mic. Uh-huh. Um, so if you are, if there's someone who's thinking about going that route where they want to, they're in corporate, they eventually want to become an entrepreneur, whether it's a side hustle or full time, what mm-hmm. are some things that they should be thinking about strategically right now to help make that transition? Well, number one, you need to prepare yourself financially. Make sure that your credit scores are what they need to be. Make sure that you're not spending all your money on red bottom shoes you know, and things that are not going to, you know, help you as an entrepreneur, make sure that you're creating more assets and liabilities so that you can, you know, step out on your own. Um, And then make sure that you are thinking about how you want to be, what you want to be entrepreneurial in, you know, so that you are um, on the side, really doing your research about what you want to do. Often people say, you know, I'm just quitting my job tomorrow and I'm just going to be an entrepreneur. You know, do you have enough money to live off on to become an entrepreneur? If you have family considerations, what is your family in agreement with your dream? Mm. You know, when I started Comfort Cake, I was a single mother of two, I had two children and I had to get, the, and they were young, you know, and I had to get their buy-in because if I didn't have it, I wasn't going to do it. You know, they had a, we had a nice corporate life. You know, I was making well over six figures. We were going on vacation and everything. And we had a big old house. And, you know, and I said, mama wants to start the comfort cake company. They knew that. And I said, you know, and the only way, and I couldn't get a loan to do it. Even with a Harvard MBA, banks thought it was a cute idea for me to start a pound cake company and they wouldn't give me a loan. And I said, you know, the only way I can get this company started is to sell the house. And I said, if you guys don't want to do it, I won't do it. And they said, you know, my daughter said, well, mama, you know, a house is not a home. A home is a place you live with the people that you love. Mm. you know we're behind you and I kept them involved all the way through because you know this is something that's important to have your family behind you so these are the things that you need to really do the pre-work for your entrepreneurial journey while you're in corporate make sure your 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 stuff is tight financially make sure your family's behind you and your friends know but even if they don't particularly if your family and friends don't agree with you and they don't understand make sure that the key people are, are with you, but don't try to get everybody behind you because people may not understand. Mm. And then you have to have the fortitude to push forward on your dreams anyway. But one of the P's I talk about in my book is get prepared mm. and make sure you're prepared. And the other P I talk about is seek positivity because everybody in the Susan Taylor of Essence told me this and I've never forgotten it. Everybody can have a front row seat in your life. Sure can. And we try. We try all the time. And I think there's a guilt that's associated with it. There's a, we like history, right? There, there are all these things that we put on ourselves and it, there's a, uh, you don't want people to think that you change or that you think you're too good or just like all of these things in our mind. And it's right. a hard adjustment. It is a hard adjustment. And you have, and Oprah Winfrey said this, that you, if, if you want to become um, an entrepreneur or do things on your own, you have to be willing to have people talk about you and get over it. You do. And and this is something that when you are trying to reach and choose a ladder, move up on the ladder corporately, have your own business, everybody's not going to be able to come with you. Mm. Your circle of of close friends, family, advisors is not going to be bigger. It's actually going to be smaller. Mm. And you've got to really accept that and move forward with it 
because you're going to get your energy from these people and they have to be the right people. So right, like in your, um, in your life now, right, as an entrepreneur and then as an advisor to some pretty amazing companies, how do you think about building community? Oh, community is something that I have always um, wanted to do. And, and it's part of who I am, building community. Um, I grew up that way. My parents were very community oriented. And so I can't do it just for me. I just can't, you know, because we didn't get here on our own. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to stay here on our own. And so I always want to be able to build community. Now, are you saying in terms of build community, um, you know, with technology or just the community in general? Like real life people who are your tribe, who, you know, when we're in undergrad, it's kind of built in. Everybody's living on campus. It's like to find a friend group and all of that stuff. But mm -hmm. it's, in, if you are an entrepreneur, somebody who's thinking about entrepreneurship, and most of your friends are corporate, it's not like the, the understanding about what your day-to-day -day life is like is mm -hmm. very different, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you make sure that you aren't lonely in the journey, that you have, that you are actually intentional about being parts of community and growing community to help you um, stay sane, stay grounded, um, give you perspective as, oh, yeah. as you move? Oh, I totally believe in networking. And there are networking entrepreneurial groups that are out there within your industry that you're interested in. That's how truly I found a lot of mentors um, in the food business because for example, um, um, the PUSH organization here in Chicago, Rainbow PUSH, Jesse Jackson um, organization had a small networking group of uh, black entrepreneurs who wanted to get into the food industry. And I would go to PUSH on Saturdays and meet them and mm -hmm. talk to them because he was very supportive of the food industry and, and wanting the food industry to be right, to do right by black entrepreneurs. And so we would huddle together and share ideas and share thoughts. But generally in any industry, um, if you start volunteering in the community before you need people, you know, but just seek networks of people who are doing what you are doing ask ask around who's doing what you're doing who's going into this kind of business you will find a network and with the with um the with google and with um the internet you can find networks much more easily than i could you know 20, 15 20 years ago mm -hmm. so i would really really suggest that through your church through friends that you know ask who's doing something similar and find a network because that is the best way to not be lonely and to be with like-minded people who are thinking about what you're doing. So how did you, right, as you started Comfort Cakes, mm -hmm. how did you not see the other people in those groups as competition and looking more as them as like assets and allies along the way? Like, what is it about you that had that perspective or that lens during that time? You know, it's a very good question because, um, you know, there were other people who were in the cake business, you know, as I was in the cake business. And one of the things that I had to get comfortable with was, you know, Sierra Lee is out there and other people are out there, but I had comfort cake and nobody has comfort cake, but me. Mm -hmm. And just like we all have a unique fingerprint, you've mm -hmm. got to think of your business as your own unique fingerprint and that, you know, you're going to do it differently than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I have an abundance mentality that there's enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think about it that way. I remember there were there were some people who were very 
much competing with us, you know, in terms of having a cake business that was, you know, similar and a pound cake business that was similar. And I just said, good for you, go get yours, because I'm gonna go get mine, mm. you know, and this and if it didn't work for me, I said, well, they may be able to do it differently. So, you know, here's something that didn't work for me, but maybe it'll work for you and 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 keeping it positive, you know, but to your point, to your point, it's got to be reciprocal. I don't think it's fair for people who, when you go to them and say, you know, would you try this for me? And then they ghost you. And then they come back to you six months, a year later, and want you to tell them how to get into the, to branding your business. Mm -hmm. And they're like, did you forget that you ghosted me, you know, and didn't even ask, didn't even say anything after I sent you my stuff twice. And then all of a sudden you want for free for me to tell you how to do your stuff. It doesn't work. Mm. No, I can't help you. Sorry. No. And you talked about coming from an abundance mentality and I, um, an abundance mindset. And to me, that's part of why you wrote this book, right? You have enough wisdom and you have enough that you want to share with people. So mm -hmm. if you can talk to me a little bit about why did you decide to write the book? How did it come about? And what are you hoping that people who get the book get from it? You know, I decided to write the book many years ago, um, you know, because people kept asking me about my career path. I am, you know, some, I call myself a reinvention specialist because I've reinvented my career so many times. And I believe in reinvention. I believe in resilience. Um, and I believe in, in just being able to, you know, turn in a different direction when you need to. And so um, I've done different proposals for different publishers and got turned down, but pivot points became real um, because these 10 pivot points are points that I've been living with for decades. And, you know, they started out um, in my first book, Tap Into Your Juice. But these 10 points uh, were points that, the, the, that Michelle Obama endorsed in my first book. Um, and she said, you know, Amy's PowerPoints can help people enlighten themselves. And so I said, I'm going to put them in my book now because with everything that's happening in the world today, if you don't know how to pivot and change, you will be left behind. And so now is the best right, time sorry. to do it. Did y'all hear that she got an endorsement from the Michelle Obama? In her? Like not Michelle, like the, hello, Amy, you can't just drop that and keep moving. What, what do you mean? Like we gotta take a moment. We need a moment to be like, but well, hold on though, Michelle, that's amazing. And I, I got that. When I got that in 2005, when I first wrote Tap Into Your Juice, when Barack Obama was running for the Senate, I, you know, I, I met them. <laughs> I can die right now. <laughs> I met them, you know, we lived in Chicago and we all lived in Hyde Park and I would see Barack Obama at Walgreens buying, you know, batteries and stuff for the family and whatnot. But I'm, you know, this is why volunteering is so important. I was volunteering to be um, on this um, board and I was on this board, um, Metropolitan Family Services and I was at some fundraiser and they were there and I met them. I actually was at Malia's baby shower because I had just moved to Chicago and somebody said, oh, come to this baby shower because you're new in town. And it was Malia, Michelle Obama and Malia's baby shower. So that's how long, that's how long ago I met them. And so, she, you know, they're running around trying to get the Senate stuff done. 
I was in the room when he announced. There were very few people when he announced. Nobody believed that he was going to do it because he had just lost the congressional seat to Bobby Rush. And so Michelle remembered that I was in the room and I told her, I said, Michelle, I'm writing this book and I really would like your endorsement. And she said, of course. And then when they, you know, and so Barack Obama, when he was running for the Senate, he, I have pictures of him sampling comfort cake at my booth at the Real Men Cook community event. You talk about community. I said, would you wear a comfort cake t-shirt? He said, sure, I will. And I have that picture. So when he became president, I sent him comfort cake. I have a letter, a letter from him from the White House saying, glad to see comfort cake is still moving strong. When I saw Michelle, because I was on the board of trustees at Howard University, and she came to Howard to visit students and whatnot, and I saw her, and I said, Michelle, I'm going to put this in my new book, and I want to use your endorsement. She said, Amy, you have that for life. So this goes back to your whole take your shot comment at the beginning from Bloomingdale's. Like, this is like a theme, right? As the opportunity presents them, present themselves organically, you are always prepared to take your shot. That is phenomenal. Yes, why not? Why not? It's like you're sitting there talking. People are people, number one. People are people. And when they, you know, and, and I'm out in the community. I've been a community activist all my life. I didn't just, you know, just hump up to somebody and say, you know, I want you to do this. They would see me out in the community, you know, giving back. You know, when you're giving back and it's, and it's authentic, people want to help you too. Mm. And it's, and that's so important because sometimes people just want to take, mm -hmm. but I've never been just a taker. I'm always, you know, out there trying to help other people when I can. And so I'm, I wrote this book to help other people. My ministry now is to help other people and particularly help other women and particularly help African-American women, whatever their age is, because it doesn't matter. Age is nothing but a number. I have a blog called Sizzling After 60 because age ain't nothing but a number. And you, our health is important. Thriving at every stage of our life is important. Being healthy is important. And pivoting at every stage of your life is important. I didn't start Comfort Cake until I was 48 years old. Mm. Okay. And I sold my house and everything. I am, you know, this is the thing. At 48, I, I got to tell you, I'm writing this book because as a black Harvard MBA, I have been bankrupted, foreclosed on, laid off and divorced twice. And I'm still making major moves. You better say that, Amy. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, so this is why I wrote, this is the other reason why I wrote the book because everybody looks at me and says, oh, she's just had everything going. You know, she's just been, everything's been smooth sailing. She's so super successful. You don't know what it takes. You mentioned this. People don't understand what it takes that you have to have faith. You have to keep going. You have to have resilience. Bounce back ability is real and you better be able to bounce back, okay? You better be able to bounce back because it is not a joke out here, but you don't have to lose yourself in the process. You mm -hmm. do not. And mm -hmm. so that's the other reason I wrote the book because I'm tired of people looking at me and saying, you know, oh my goodness, she's had all this, this, this success. Best friend was murdered at 19. I had to recover from that. I was at Howard University on debate team scholarship. She's mm -hmm. murdered, shot in the head. We worked together. I had to overcome that. 
talk about resilience. Years later, my favorite cousin was killed in a horrible car accident. She went through the windshield. My, my, her father couldn't handle it. My aunt said, Amy, you got to get on a plane and come to Los Angeles and help me. Mm-hmm. We, she picked me up from the airport. We went to the wig shop and picked out, a, I had to pick out a long hair wig because my cousin had long hair. And we went from the wig shop to the funeral parlor. I went downstairs with the mortician. He's putting her face back together and I'm combing the wig on her head. Mm. That's what I knew what Deb was like watching. And I said, she wasn't getting up. And I said, as long as I can get up, as long as I can look up rather, as long as I can look up, I can get up. Mm. I taught my kids that my son has that tattooed on his arm. So you can look up, you can get up from anything. Mm. And as women, as, as this craziness that's out here today, you know, that's going, that we're dealing with, we can make it. Think about it. As mm-hmm. crazy as it is, and I tell young women, Black women all the time, it's still not as bad as picking cotton. Facts. That's an undisputed fact. It's an undisputed fact. Think about, but for the grace of God, go we all. If we were back in the 1800s, what our lives would have looked like. So do you feel then a sense of responsibility to be excellent? Like, how do you think about excellence? I think it is non-negotiable because God gave us these gifts and he meant us to use them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like, if you're going to waste your gifts, why? Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's, I can understand. Listen, there are times when I'm tired. And I'm like, I've been grinding for a long time, you know? And there are times when I'm like, who do I have to still keep grinding? But then you have to say, maybe I do my grind a little differently. You know, as I evolve and as I'm, you know, mature and I'm, you know, doing things differently, I'm grinding differently now because I'm not grinding in corporate. I'm grinding to get my book out and get my message out. I'm still, and I'm teaching differently. You know, I, I was teaching before, you know, at Loyola and I'm now teaching differently through my book and my teachings and my, you know, with podcasts, like what I'm doing with you, but I'm using my gifts. And you know what, what's great is that if you think that excellence has no expiration date. This keeps you lively and vibrant mm. all of your life. Mm. Mm. Um, when does the book come out? It's due to come out late spring 2021. So excited. So um, this is going to be, so if people make it to this far in the podcast, they're going to get a little sneak peek. So one of the things that we are doing for I Choose the Ladder, it's starting in 2021, is each quarter we're going to release a themed box. Mm-hmm. And I think Q3 is going to be about career pivots. Mm-hmm. So that may be a place where the where if you're a I choose the ladder listener, you might get this book in your box if you are a subscriber, right? Because it's gonna be all the tools that you need to be able to pivot if you are thinking about it. So I'm so excited, but let's get to the lightning round before I, I get carried away. Um, okay. So thinking back, and this can be corporate or entrepreneurial, but just your career overall, what's Mm -hmm. one piece of career advice you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? I would say go global as soon as you can. Ooh, what does that mean? It means that if you have an opportunity to take a global assignment, take it. If you can't go actually overseas, 
work on a project that has global implications mm. because the world is global and you have to be able to understand that. Mm. Uh, what's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn but has had the biggest impact on your career? Picking the right life partner. Oh, say more. Say, please. Because, yes, yes. Picking the right life partner because, you know, family relationships require so much in terms of, of what it takes to manage your family relationships and manage your career and have all that working at the same time, you're, you're juggling a lot. And if you are you know, also juggling issues of partnership and trying to you know, you know, manage all of that, and if you have children, it's tough, you know, it's tough. And going through marriages and divorces with children as I have twice, it's just not easy. And so, you know, you, I'm a family oriented person and I wanted motherhood. And luckily that part, my motherhood part has been just amazing. And even though the marriage didn't work out, the motherhood part worked out wonderfully. And so, you know, you just have to be careful that you're picking the right partner who understands who you are and you understand who they are. Uh, because it can impact your career progress. Luckily, I was able to work through it, but it wasn't easy. Hmm. Um, what's one, ooh, I know the answer to this one. What is one book that you could read over and over again? Well, of course, Tap Into Your Juice and could be one, but the one book that I recommend is, it's actually called The One Thing by Gary Keller. It's surprisingly simple truths behind extraordinary results. Hmm. One Thing? It's called The One Thing. Mm -hmm. I've read it many times and it really makes you take different aspects of your life and plot them out and say, you know, what's the one thing I can do that by doing it by X date will be make everything else easier or unnecessary. Mm. Um, and then the last question, we mm -hmm. all know that decisions about your career are made when you are not in the room. So mm -hmm. what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? Well, that Amy is one of the most creative, tenacious, fun, innovative, and hardworking people that I know. Mm. She builds relationships that makes it happen and gets things done. Oh, on that note, thank you so much, Amy. This was amazing. Um, I know that I'm going to get so many emails about how can we get Amy back? Y'all, we're going to work on getting Amy back in the I Choose the Ladder. Um, ecosystem sometime soon. But Amy, you are, we've just scratched the surface. So hopefully we get to do this again sometime soon. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I am so, so happy to do it and amazed at what you are doing for so many women. It's so important because it's like the campfire of our ancestors. We have to keep it going and share the wisdom. I told you all that Amy was going to be amazing. I didn't expect her to share as much as she did. And so I am incredibly grateful to Amy S. Hilliard for being an open book for us in hopes that our journey up the corporate ladder is a little bit smoother than you know what she had to endure. You all know that I like to end each episode with my three gems that I took away. So the first one is take your shot. When you're in situations, I know that it may be scary. I know you may not want to embarrass yourself or whatever the case may be, the mental block, but you got to take your shot when you have it. Second thing, Always start at the top and don't settle, right? You don't want to talk yourself out of going for something that you know you deserve, that you know you can excel at because you are afraid. So start at the top and then work your way down. 
And then the last thing, and I know I sound like a broken record when I say this, is that excellence is non-negotiable. I don't care um, where you work, how you work, what level you're in. The excellence that you put out into the world comes back to you. So you're doing it for yourself, not for anybody else. Um, as always, if you want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder, on Facebook at I Choose the Ladder, and make sure that you are getting your copy of the review planner at thereviewplanner.com. Speaking of excellence, this is a surefire way to make sure that you are excellent all year long. Again, pick up your planners at thereviewplanner.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.